0: Coming up on today's show, why don't we have a decision yet on 5G Huawei technology in Canada? We're going to have a chat with Toby Boulay, father of Logan Boulay, the founder of Green Shirt Day in honor of his son Logan, who died in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash and started a huge push for organ donation in our country. Well, all that's been derailed by the fourth wave. And a great story. A seal mounted camera has been found after three years lying on the ocean floor. Our prime minister told us last week that our government's decision on whether or not Huawei technologies will be allowed to set up 5G technology in Canada will be made soon. What exactly that means and how soon it is, I guess we have to wait and see. Um, But in the meantime, there's a lot of people saying, well, that decision really and truly should have been made some time ago. And it's not a hard decision to make. A lot of other countries have already made it. So for more on this discussion, we're going to chat now with Charles Burton, who is a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and non-resident senior fellow of the European Value Centre for Security Policy in Prague. He's a former professor of political science at Brock and has served as a diplomatic Canada's embassy in Beijing. Mr. Burton, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate you joining us. Great to speak with you, Shay. So when we talk about this Huawei 5G technology, the Prime Minister is saying, okay, we'll have a decision for you soon. But there was also some other talk about China and their approach to China that sort of maybe plays into why this decision hasn't been made or why it's not a very simple decision as it has been for many of our allies? Well, you know, we've
1: been talking I and mean, the government claims to have been thinking this over and considering it for more than three years. It was promised by Ralph Goodale when he was still in government that the government would decide before the election two elections ago. So the question is really Why won't the government make a decision on Huawei 5G when all of the other members of the Five Eyes Intelligence Consortium have determined that the Huawei 5G technology poses a significant security threat? Because the Huawei company would be bound under Chinese law to provide Chinese intelligence with any information about, you know, databases, cyber espionage or critical infrastructure that Huawei might you know, that 5G might control, you know, the water, the electricity and so And the 5G technology will be integral into a lot of our critical systems. And so, you know, everybody else has decided that this is a bad idea because of Huawei's reputed pr- 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 connection to China's intelligence and security apparatus. And our government now says, oh, we'll come up with a decision in a few weeks. I mean, my concern is that they will come up with a decision saying, well, you know, we looked at it and Huawei is not that dangerous to us. We can put it in the periphery of our telecommunication systems, not the core. And they'll make that announcement like, I don't know, Friday before Christmas or something. So that <laughs> the enormous public opinion, which thinks this is a terrible idea, will have time to calm down.
0: Charles, why would they make that decision, though? That's the question. Like you say, I mean, all of our allies have said, no, that's it. 5G is not happening here. We know there are documented security risks with it. Why, at this point, would they be contemplating not just coming out and saying, a year ago, like our allies did, yeah, this isn't happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, mean, the thing is, really, is the government... um being um, subverted by Chinese interests. I mean, uh, I think to anybody, you know, the Huawei 5G has been thoroughly discredited as a bad option. You know, it, it of course, Bell and Telus, who have Huawei equipment and would like to install more, would like to get it because it's sold at a considerable discount you know, 30% or so, to the competitors in, in Europe, like uh, Nokia and Ericsson. And those companies, you know, Bell and Telus and other telecommunications companies, they don't have a mandate to protect Canadian national security. Their mandate is to provide telecommunications service at the best quality, at the best price, although, as we know, that's pretty damn expensive here in Canada. But leaving that aside, um, you know, the question really is, why would our government agree to this? Why would they give in to China on Huawei When it would put a wedge between us and the United States, who has made it clear to us that if we install a Huawei 5G into our telecommunications, that the U.S. will not be inclined to share intelligence to us uh, the way they have been, because some will be regarded as a weak link in, in security.
0: And, I mean, that is the important consideration, right? When we're taking a look at the geopolitical atmosphere that we're living in right now, we we seem to have a lot of countries that have identified. Biden's been speaking publicly about China being a force that needs to be dealt with. We have them, you know, linking up with different countries. Um, Canada seems to be, has. if we're going to get dragged into this, we'll be kicking and screaming the whole way rather than what seems to be the obvious response is, okay, we're going to line up with our allies and do what we need to do. Um, and it's going to hurt our relationships with our allies. Yeah, and I mean, and
1: threaten global security and the international rules-based order because we know from the Michaels incident and many other things that China sees itself as an exceptional nation that doesn't have to abide by the normal standards of diplomacy. So, you know, if they're going to pick up people and make them into hostages, uh, we should just get used to it. And in trade, you know, when to to engage in economic coercion against us now they they've messed around with our canola seeds and meat saying that there's something wrong with those canadian shipments when there isn't simply to pressure the government to to give way on political Um, areas. So, you know, I think our our government thinks that we can be really smart and somehow steer a a course between the United States and China to enhance our economic relationship with China and leave the U.S. to deal with global security and, uh, you know, make our concerns over Chinese espionage, um, interference and menacing of people in Canada and uh, our concerns over China's desire to acquire control of, of mines and energy resources aside, so that money can be made in, in China trade and investment for certain politically influential Canadian corporate interests. Well. You know, this is just not a, a policy which which serves Canada's security and preservation of our sovereignty. So, you know, Canadians really have to demand that our government be much more transparent on China and get into compliance with our allies to to defend the the global order and try and maintain justice and reciprocity in trade and diplomacy, which you know China is clearly hostile to.
0: You know, we're viewing a lot of this from the Canadian perspective, and it seems fairly obvious to you and I and and most of the listeners here based on their reaction, but let's view it from the Chinese perspective. This seems to be playing right into their hand, this policy of appeasement, which they have taken full advantage of and flat out bullied us. Uh, This would be a continuation of that. And in addition, it would further cause dissension in the Western allies that they see as probably their biggest opposition to global domination, correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, it just emboldens them to do more. I mean, like, what exactly are we doing to make it clear to the Chinese government that what they did to Kovrick and favor was, you know, extremely offensive to Canada? Absolutely damn all. Well. You know, yep. there's not a, we're not making a single retaliatory measure now that those guys are back in safety. The government instead says, oh, it's time to, as they put it, com- coexist, compete, cooperate, and challenge China which is really about capitulation in the interests of, of, you know, short-term corporate gain. And so, I, I, you know, I think that Canadians, of whatever political stripe, really have to stand up for our Canadian values and sovereignty and say to the people in Ottawa, these elites who, you know, who seem to be prepared to to sell out our interests because they they can derive some personal benefit particularly after they leave political office they may be rewarded with you know lucrative Board memberships, or you know, other interesting things involving China, that this is just not acceptable. And what we what we really need is is to do what Australia has done, which is to have a foreign influence transparency scheme act, where people who are in positions of policy making authority, who are recipients of benefit from a foreign state, have to declare that, mm-hmm. so that we know there's a conflict of interest. And why our government resists enacting this legislation is beyond me, because obviously it's a good. Idea idea that we know who's being benefiting from a foreign country and therefore is in effect lobbying on that behalf.
0: So is it we're already that deeply infiltrated that it's hard to I mean some of the things that you're talking about here and the, the influence that the Chinese government has on our government um, it seems like we're pretty far down that road already Charles.
1: Well, that's certainly the Australian scholar Clive Hamilton says that we have more elite capture than any other advanced Western country in Canada. I mean, if we had the legislation and demanded that people be transparent about this... Um, You know, then we'd be able to get more to the bottom of it. But, you know, when Australia put that in, they found out that their Minister of International Trade, who had negotiated the free trade agreement between Australia and China, was uh, a recipient of an $880,000 a year private consultancy. Well, nothing illegal about it, um, you know, but when you know it did it, 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 it did cause people to to wonder if there's a connection you know between the what, what the man was doing in government and uh, the fact that he was being rewarded richly afterwards, when the Australian legislation came into effect, um, Andrew Robb resigned the private consultancy because of the perception that, that there was a conflict there.
0: So to me, I I always thought the Huawei thing, you know, maybe we were waiting until the two Michaels were freed, and then we'd come out and say, no, Huawei, we're going to follow along with our allies. Sounds to me like you're not 100% convinced that that is the decision we will get from the Trudeau government, ultimately.
1: It doesn't look like it. And certainly a recent speech by the uh, Canadian ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, encouraging Canadians to do more trade and investment with China, uh, suggests that it seems that once you know once they they cleared up the michael's thing it was to open the way for for more deals with chinese communist business networks you know this this troubles me it seems to me that once we cleared up the michael's thing it was time to get into compliance with australia and the united states and uk and, UK and japan and india and, uh, and try and bring China into compliance with the expectations of, of the globe in terms of how you, how you deal with foreign countries and, and how you, you um, work together for the benefit of all.
0: You know, in the pact with the, USA, with the uh, USA, Australia and the UK, is that an example of how we're damaging ourselves in the eyes of our allies with our, our stance on China and they're, they're just leaving us out when they form new pacts?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, why is Canada not there? Canada has um, a major um, outlet to the Asia-Pacific, and, you know, we're, we're actually geographically slightly closer, uh, at our closest point to Asia-Pacific than Australia is. Australia is a smaller country with a smaller population, so why are they the ones that are joining with the UK and the and mm-hmm. the US and Canada uh, apparently, um, from what we hear, President Biden didn't even bother to to inform Prime Minister Trudeau in advance. We've got we've become that irrelevant to to the alliance.
0: Scary, scary stuff. Charles, I always appreciate the insight. Thank you so much. Good to speak with you. Yeah, you too. Charles Burton, who is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, a non-resident senior fellow of the European Values Center for Security Policy in Prague. And a former professor of political science at Brock University. He's also served as a diplomat at Canada's embassy in Beijing. Guy knows the lay of the land when it comes to Canada-China. We're going to have a chat now I'm looking forward to. We're joined on the phone by Toby Boulay. Toby is the father of Logan Boulay, one of the victims of the Humboldt bus crash and one of the forces behind... A campaign that launched out of that. Let's just get. Um, first of all, thank you so much for joining us, Toby. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Shay. Appreciate you getting a hold of me and working through Twitter is awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> it works, right? Um, it let's does. just let's just bring people up to speed. Um, the lasting legacy of Logan and, and what he's meant to people all across this country and how that came about and, and what it's grown into. Well,
2: Logan decided to be an organ donor before his birthday, and he signed up to be an organ donor on his birthday. Make a long story short, Short. then he passed away six, uh, five weeks later in that horrific bus crash. And the world grabbed that right away because uh, Logan's godfather put on Twitter, I, um, in Facebook, sorry, because I asked him, I said, because we're just getting inundated with phone calls and messages. Like, it's crazy. We're just trying to be with Logan, obviously. Yeah. And so Neil put out there that Logan had donated his organs and had asked to do so. And that created what was called the Logan Boule effect, and that took off into Green Shirt Day. So here we are coming up to Green, the third green, uh, fourth green shirt day on April seventh, two 2022. And uh, to date, Logan's about, it's not just Logan, Logan and the humble Broncos, let's speak, it's what it is, right? It's not yeah, just Logan, yeah. it's Logan and the Broncos. They, they've, they've added about 300,000 people have re- registered online now to be organ donors, and that's huge, that's massive. That's the largest in Canadian history. That's and it incredible. Just keeps growing.
0: Yeah, it really is incredible, and what an effort. Um, now, now that we've hit this pandemic, uh, of course, that derailed so many different things, including the Logan Boulay effect and the progress that was being made. Um, but more than that, what we're seeing with Alberta hospitals right now is really, really causing some problems in this area.
2: It certainly is. It obviously first it happened in Saskatchewan. When they shut down their organ transplant program not because they wanted to; it's because they had to move people to frontline healthcare, obviously. Alberta is in the same situation. They have not shut down their deceased organ donor program. They have they have closed from what I've read, I mean, call me wrong, and it's not you growing too, but they they've closed their living organ donor program in Alberta. And there has been cases of young people that have passed away and their parents have wanted to donate their organs and they can't because there's no operating rooms available for a transplant to occur. And if a transplant doesn't occur, obviously what happens then is someone may pass away.
0: So here we are. Yeah, it's just an awful situation. Toby, do you have any idea how many people are on waiting lists in our province? Every time I hear the number, it sort of staggers me. I mean, there's thousands of people in Alberta waiting for organ uh, transplants.
2: It's like 4,500 people in Canada are on the list, and then about about 10% of that do not get organs each year. The actual breakdown for Alberta, I don't know for sure. Um, And again, you're right, it changes quite a bit. It just fluctuates. And what's happening now is that we're we're losing deceased organ donors. People are still passing in car accidents and wherever you, whatever you can think of that's still happening. but We're losing that opportunity in Alberta to have those organs transplanted.
0: And I guess there's no way of knowing what the numbers would be, obviously, because it's all we don't know. But we know that you know over ten thousand surgeries have been canceled in Alberta. We know that the operating theaters just aren't working; they're not available. Um, but. In terms of, there's a time issue here for a lot of these people, right? They, it's not like, oh, well, we'll wait till this fourth wave subsides and we'll get, you know, maybe they don't have time to wait for the fourth wave to subside.
2: Well, there's, there's a, you're exactly, it's a huge time issue for people that are waiting for a transplant. Um, they're waiting very, very patiently and they're fighting hard to keep themselves alive and so is the healthcare system. And when they're held up and a and transplant does not occur as in Mr. Mathers was at Edmonton, I think it's September eighth. He was literally the day before he's in the hospital waiting to get his his uh, living kidney transplant, and they had to shut it down. They told both the to, both people, "Go home, you're done." And so he's now back on the wait list. There's that, and the other side is that that's not talked about much, but it's the side of family that we're on. The Boulayes is deceased organ donor is like you just can't take you couldn't take Logan's heart and put it in the freezer and wait until a day that now we can do a transplant. A deceased organ donor trans- opportunity only happens when an angel donor passes and so all of those opportunities are now being lost and that's what's called a missed donor opportunity those are happening all across Alberta
0: Saskatchewan I it's, never it's a, yeah sorry you know Toby I never thought of it from that perspective as somebody who has a loved one pass away that wants to be an organ donor is is it important that that wish be fulfilled and not in essence wasted as it is right now well, in our family, it's
2: incredibly important. It's it's The family has the final say in Canada, and for us to have the final say and then, and then to be told no, it can't happen because of this and this and this. If there's no matches available, there's no matches, but it's because if it's happening because, uh, because of choices people have made that have now clogged up the healthcare system let's just put it nicely that way for change we'll use nice words for change <laughs> that's clogged up the healthcare system that would be difficult for a family it could be difficult because your loved one is just in front of you passed you've held on to them for in logan's case 27 hours we have got spend logan as we waited for all the tests to come through and the matches to happen well that would have been gone they would have just said no i'm sorry
0: and the most frustrating part here, Toby, is there's really nothing anybody can do, right? I mean, it's you can raise all the awareness, you, want, you can talk about this all you want, but basically we're in the position we're in, and until it changes, we're staying there.
2: There's nothing we can do other than right now for me to get in my soapbox and say, when it all ends, keep, keep registering in Alberta and in Saskatchewan, go online, become an organ donor, register, 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 because there's going to be a need. And then obviously a living organ donor, there's a need for that, huge, because... Kidneys and livers are partial liver transplants. The, the, the cool thing about liver transplants, yeah, know you know, the shade that you actually grows back. Yeah. A kidney, the kidney disappears, you only have one, but a liver grows back. It's We didn't know
0: anything about that. Yeah, apparently it's that the, the only human blood. organ that will actually regenerate itself.
2: Exactly. So that's really cool. And that's like, and again, my wife, and we do nothing about that Like. We were registered organ donors ourselves, but we weren't experts. We're still not experts. Yeah. We're far from experts. But but we do have the, I can phone or text any expert number to basically right now and find out information if I want. But they're kind of busy. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, it's, so just keep registering, keep being aware, keep being active, keep following the story. And then when the story subsides, like we know it will, it has to. It just can't keep going at this pace. Yeah. It will subside. And then we have to be prepared to, if your loved one passes away, you have to be. Prepared. I just believe you have to be ready to make that decision, exactly. support that decision of your loved one.
0: Yeah, and continue the work that you guys have been doing for years now with, with tremendous effect. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Toby. I really appreciate it. I, pre-
2: I appreciate you, Shay. reaching out to me, and I'm just always glad to add, add a voice to this conversation. Thank yeah. you very
0: much. We will chat again. Thank you so much. That Thank is. You. Toby Boulay, uh, his son, Logan Boulay, was one of the victims of that horrific bus crash in Humboldt almost four years ago now, as you heard Toby say, uh, coming up on our fourth green shirt day very soon here. And um, the work that has come out of that, the Logan Boulay effect, I'm sure you've heard of it, just as he said, 300,000 people signing up to be organ donors. So you always look for what good can come out of something purely tragic. All right, I'm looking forward to this. This should be fun. Really interesting story. A few years back, uh, scientists decided they wanted to get a better look at uh, what goes on in the life of a gray seal. (laughs) That was was the plan. What's the best way to do that? Well, put a camera on one. So they did. Back in 2018, they stuck a camera uh, on a seal and promptly lost it. It fell off. And they thought, that was it. We're done. We're not going to see whatever happened to that seal. But turns out now three years later, they got the camera back. It's a fascinating story. So let's get into what happened, how they got it back, and what they're hoping to learn. We're joined now by Damien Lidgard, who is with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans as a biologist. Damien, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Hi there. How are you? Really good. Thank you. So let's start. uh, Back in 2018, what was the goal of this experiment? What were you hoping to find out? And how do you put a camera on a seal?
3: Yeah, so it's going back in time a little bit. So um, December 31st, 2017, we have these uh, cameras that are designed for use on marine animals, such as a seal, and we really wanted to learn more about the camera, how to use the camera and so forth. So the idea was that you put it on a young male that's not going to, uh, during the breeding season, that's not going to spend all his time on land defending females, but rather He's going to be more mobile. He's going to go out to sea, come back onto the land and so forth. So you attach the camera to the seal. The seal goes into the water. He goes off and does his thing for a couple of days. He comes back into the breeding colony. You catch the animal, take the camera off and have a look to see what you've got. Uh, we've done this n- numerous times before with other equipment and it's, you know, it's always always worked. In this particular case, <laughs> This male had other plans, and he never came back onto the island. And so by the time, you know, come to the end of the breeding season, still no sign of the male. We basically gave up and said, okay, it's lost. lost the
0: camera. <laughs> okay, so what well, are you trying to find out? Like, what was the hope? What was the focus of, of the camera? I mean, just basically, it's, it's an, a seal's eye view of the life of a seal, right?
3: That's right, yeah. So uh, what we wanted to know is, you know, um, in the past, we've used like uh, instruments like satellite like transmitters and time depth recorders uh, to study their behaviour. But you don't see anything. What you get back are just numbers, mm-hmm. and from those numbers, you have to you know try and figure out okay, what is the seal doing? And so you end up making various assumptions about the behaviour, and those assumptions can be wrong. So with the camera, you can actually see what the seal is doing. And then we can sort of um, use that ground truth um, other data. so a good example is uh, when, you know when a seal forages, it tends to you know dives down to the bottom, um, it spends some time at the bottom, and then it comes back up to the surface. So if you look to the dive profile of a seal doing that, it's basically a U shape. Uh, we uh, recently learned that seals also have a u-shaped dive when they're sleeping so really so seals actually sleep at the bottom of the sea wow so if you uh if you were just looking at a dive profile uh you don't know if the seal is foraging if the seal is sleeping or doing some of the other behavior but with a camera you can actually see what the animal is doing okay how
0: did you get it back? I mean, how do you get a camera back from the ocean floor?
3: So, um, so normally, as I said, you know, the you know the animal comes back to the land, and you capture him, and you yeah. move the camera. And this particular situation, um, so at the end of January 2018, we just basically forgot about it. You know, the cameras. We're not going to get the camera back. Yeah, we're leaving the island. Done deal. Then this year in June, um, I got an email from the company that makes these cameras in Australia. And he sent me pictures of of the camera and said, is this your camera? (laughs) And, you know, I was shocked. I was, you know, flabbergasted and said, well, yeah, that is my camera. How, you know, where is it? And it turns out that a vessel uh, fishing for surf clams was operating off Bankero Bank, which is an offshore sandbank close to Sable Island, where we were doing our work. And they, in their net, they had picked up the seal camera. Wow! <laughs> um, one of the fishermen on board, thankfully, was interested in. You know what is this? You know what is this piece of equipment? What does it do? Um, what's it used for? And he got in touch with the company in Australia, who then got in touch with me, and then eventually I got in touch with the fisherman, and we, you know, we chatted, and eventually he handed me the uh, the camera, <laughs> and, and, and it was full of video, right? Yeah. So it was, you know. Dead as a doornail, of course, it's been <laughs> at the bottom of the sea for three and a half years. So I couldn't do anything with it. I had to send it back to Australia, and they looked at it, and sure enough, um, it was full of data. It had, like, 59 uh, videos of of the seal doing various things underwater. It had um, dive profile data, acceleration data, just a bounty of uh, information. So that so- was just incredible. So the experiment
0: worked, ultimately. I mean, it took longer than you thought it might, but in the end it worked.
3: Yes. (laughs) We would have liked to have got that data much sooner, but in the end, the study did work. And miraculously, the the camera is still good. And so they're actually sending the camera back to me and I'm going to put it on another seal um, in November.
0: Now, have you learned a a better way of fastening it to the next seal so that you don't go through this again in three years?
3: So um, what we we do now is that we attach it to uh, pregnant females, and we know quite a bit about um, some of these seals on Sable. So we choose a female that is very likely to go to Sable, um, to return to Sable in December to give birth. Okay. So we put the, we put the camera on the female in November. She goes out, she does her thing, and then she will come to Sable in December, January uh, to give birth. We'll find her, capture, her, and remove the camera.
0: So you have a reasonable expectation that you know where that seal is going to be at in December and January. That yeah. makes sense. Okay, yeah. I got gotcha. you, Damien. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it.
3: All oh, right. No problem. <laughs> Talk okay. to you later. Thanks.
0: That is okay. Damien Lidgard with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, a biologist with them, who got his camera back three years after he thought it was was gone for good. The seal got rid of it. I wonder what happened to the seal, though. And that's what we'll find out. He has, he's got so many hours of video that he has to go through. Hasn't even seen it all. For me, the first thing I would do is go right to the end. And maybe, maybe we find out how the seal lost the, the camera. I would think, you know, there's a good chance it was violently... But I don't know. Maybe we can follow up on this story. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and
3: review us.